Hey everyone, it's Chris. We try not to take things too seriously here on the Netflix Martyrs, but this week we lost one of the, if not the greatest writer on film of all time. So we would be remiss if we didn't take a moment to recognize Roger Ebert. Roger, thanks for every thumbs up and double thanks for every thumbs down. All right, on with the show. A romantic comedy with no romance or comedy. A female lead that comes off more Dahmer than Deschanel. A fiasco and a failure, all rolled into one. This week, it's Death by Elizabethtown. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Netflix Martyrs. This is episode three, and it's Elizabethtown. As always, I'm Chris Mattiello. We also have Rob Arecki. Hello, hello. And from way down in the wang of America, Pam Roby. <laughs> hello. So, today was Cameron Crowe's Elizabethtown, starring Orlando Bloom, Kirsten Dunst, Susan Sarandon, we start off the episodes with something we call Five Across the Eyes. We try to explain, describe, recommend, review, gripe about a movie in five words or less. So, do any of you have a good way to start off the Five Across the Eyes segment? Creepy Kirsten. Suicidal Legolas. Terrible. Nice. Very good. <laughs> Cameron Crowe really likes music. So D couldn't be here today. He's not in the state or near a computer anywhere. For camaraderie, he watched the film. I watched it with him a day or two ago. And he submitted a haiku. So oh, great. I'm going to read D's haiku. Boring, stupid plot, manic pixie dream girl, and fuck Ryan Adams. Fuck <laughs> <laughs> Ryan Adams indeed. Yeah, a lot of Ryan Adams in this movie. A lot of my morning jacket. A lot oh, of yeah, there was sad one. bastard music. <laughs> uh, my five across the eyes. Thanks a lot, Zach Braff. <laughs> this was all your fault. Yeah, this is, this is 2005. This was a year after Garden State. Now, from what I understand about the making of this film, uh, Cameron Crowe has, had had this script written for some time, and then he just decided to put it out a year after Garden State. In my mind, that means he saw Garden State and was like, oh, shit. Zach Braff made the same movie I was almost trying to write. I guess I should just rush this out. Maybe when he was writing it, he had a bunch of different endings for the movie and then couldn't decide which one he wanted to use, so he just threw all of them in there. Oh, yes. We'll talk about the multiple Return of the King-esque endings in this film a little <laughs> bit later on, but let's start from the beginning. The movie opens with Legolas himself, Orlando Bloom, stepping off of a helicopter. Uh, we get the background story that he's a shoe designer, and he created these shoes called the Spasmodicas that have been hyped up, and he's being brought to this Nike-esque company where he works uh, to be fired. And he's kind of going on this, this Green Mile-esque last walk through the building, and his girlfriend, who's Jessica Beale, is there, tries to console him, uh, but he's, he's clearly 
at the start, uh, mopey, depressed, sad white guy. I thought he pulls off an American accent nicely. Uh, but his character is very interesting to see that he starts off sad and remains sad throughout, <laughs> I think, the majority of the film. Um, he did have a couple interesting things about his character, though, which are revealed a little, you know, in, in this part of the movie and then a little later on. I really actually like the fact that he mentions that he's collecting, like, last glances. Uh, he's started to see in his life that there is a, a look that people give him when they think they're never going to see him again. And going throughout the beginning of this, like you said, this this walk of shame he's uh, had to do, that he's collecting a lot of last glances, uh, the last of which, of course, being from the lovely Jessica Biel. Um, and he's kind of sent off to meet the boss. And, and this part, I, I don't think needed to happen, but we do get to see Alec Baldwin in the flesh. So that's always nice, a little yes. Baldwin sighting. Tina Fey must have seen this movie and been like, yep, that's our Jack Donaghy, because this really <laughs> seems like a tryout for Jack Donaghy. Definitely, I, I totally agree with that. It's like the Facebook of shoes, and he's like this fun boss. He's also shrewd businessman, and fi- basically, in so many words, tells Orlando Bloom, um, "I'm sending, like, I'm making sure that everyone knows this is your fault and not mine." Basically, saying, "I'm not taking any fault for this. This is on you." And yeah, did anyone else think that? Did anyone else think that was kind of weird that? Donaghy tells him he needs to go talk to this journalist who's writing basically a, a smash piece on him. He knows he's getting fired. Yeah. Why, why would he go talk to this guy? That is true. I, didn't, I guess I didn't really think about that. I was still kind of... It's a really quick intro. Not that it's hard to follow, but it's a lot of stuff happening. For me, it was hard to focus so much on it because you get a voiceover at the very beginning of the film of just Orlando Bloom trying to be super deep. And that kind of distracted me because I was just so busy gagging over how like already pretentious this movie was yes. <laughs> like five minutes into it. As he says, you know, in his deep... Uh, way of thinking because anyone can fail by the just the lack of success he's in a fiasco and that's how he kind of describes his situation um but with so much voiceover i mean it really it carried on it was uh it was almost as long as the opening credits for dracula 3000 it was lengthy (laughs) and bam you're right he doesn't have anything to lose because according to jack donaghy he has lost the company 972 million dollars which, as Jack Donaghy points out, could be rounded to a billion dollars. Now, <laughs> this was the first time of many times in this movie I call shenanigans. All right? Yeah. Because there's no fucking way that a shoe would cost a company a billion dollars. Not only that, but there are focus groups, marketing firms, advertising meetings, all of these things that have to happen before a shoe is made and released. Someone would have said, no, this isn't going to work. Yeah. It just wasn't really clear why everyone loved the shoe so much and then everyone hates the shoe so much. And I don't know if I just missed that part or I was just like zoning out. But it it never really – it doesn't seem fair. I would have liked to have seen like, oh, you know, a bunch of kids wore these and they all broke their legs or they fell off a building wearing your shoes. There was no explanation to my knowledge why the shoes were – so loved the fact that in a flashback uh, was my favorite part of this entire film. The party, the party oh, yeah. scene. If we could talk about that real quick. Yeah. And he gave up. It shows that he's a very uh, driven employee because he decides not to go home. 
to his family for Christmas, and he's at this Google-looking party with confetti and a girl air-humping his shoe. <laughs> like, she's humping and thrusting and got the shoe in his hand, and I just loved her. I loved her. The, the personification of the love for this shoe that the company had. Just look at this girl's, like, twisted, sweaty face as she's <laughs> like, yeah, and she's got the shoe on Christmas. It was great. Yeah, yes. they, but they don't, you're right, they don't ever explain. Like, they just show a whole crate of them being sent back to a warehouse that says recalled on them, but they never actually tell you what happened with the shoe. Like, if some part of them exploded and, like you said, like, took off kids' legs or something, or if people just looked at the shoe. Because when you do actually see the shoe, it's pretty horrendous looking. I thought it was... Well, that's the stuff. thing. There couldn't have been a recall, because yeah. at the end of the movie, the shoes are on sale. Yeah. And they are fuck ugly. Yeah. But if you take off the little wings on the side, they don't <laughs> look that different than any pair of sneakers that, like, a basketball player is wearing these days. Agreed. But, yeah, those wings, those, like, weird plasticky, they're, like, these weird plastic flaps that look like, I don't even understand what was happening. But, yeah, you're right. Someone in a focus group would look at them and go, wow, no one's ever going to wear those because it's never going to happen. But. And who let the name Spasmodica get past the first <laughs> round of development? <laughs> it was terrible. Well, he decides to go home and kill himself, which seems like the correct thing to do if you're Orlando Bloom. But in the most con- like, in the most ridiculous manner possible. Maybe one well, of the three scenes He's an engineer. It's he true. He had to engineer a good death, I guess. One of the maybe three scenes in the movie that got a genuine laugh out of me. Yeah, he is going through his apartment, just basically. Also, quick creepy thing here. So, like we said before, he was dating Ellen, um, who is Jessica Biel. When you see his apartment, his computer has a screensaver of her face. I don't understand making anyone's face my screensaver, but anyway. So, he's going through his apartment, he's getting all his valuable stuff, and he's throwing it out on the curb. Um, all of his cool gadgets are out on the curb. He doesn't want them anymore because he is going to end his life by taking out an exercise bike and duct taping a kitchen knife, like a really sharp kitchen knife, onto the handle so that every time the pedals go, the knife plunges in towards where his chest is going to be. And he hangs a pair of spasmodicas. On the on the handle of the bike. That's right, as a suicide note, basically. Yeah, he's gone yeah. full Elliot Smith at this point. He's just <laughs> he, he knows there's nothing left. Hot Jessica Beale left him. Hot Alec Baldwin fired him. He's got nothing, uh, but he does have his family. So he thinks we find out that his father has died. The the cell phone call from his sister is what saves his life. First of all, do you know how many times you'd have to get stabbed, I think, with this knife to die? Like, maybe a hundred. And then the phone rings and the phone rings and the phone rings. His awesome, like, super high-tech Nokia flip phone, circa 2005, is ringing and vibrating and ringing and vibrating. And it's his sister. And he, he keeps asking, can I call you back? Can I call you back? Which just seems so cruel. Could you imagine if he did go through with it and his sister was like, I just talked to him, like... He said he would call me back. Like, the whole time, it just sets up his kind of selfish, selfish personality. And the whole driving force of this movie is that their beloved father has passed. He had a heart attack while visiting family. And when you see the family Elizabethtown and what they eat in Elizabethtown, I think it's pretty safe to know why he had a heart attack. Yeah. Especially when you see who's cooking all the food for him. Yes. Well, the sister. The sister is played by... That's the first thing I thought is, oh, man. 
That's why. That's why. <laughs> the sister is played by the hilarious Judy Greer, who is not really given anything to do in this movie. I mean, she's great. She's great on Arrested Development. She's great as a voice actress in Archer. Um, but she's just not given anything to do except be sad and be Orlando Bloom's cell phone link between the family and Elizabethtown. The mother, by the way, played by Susan Sarandon, is also really wasted in this movie. She's not given anything to do except a couple really, really sad quote-unquote comedy scenes. So sad. So embarrassed for Susan Sarandon. Yes. She's trying so hard. She's just, like, so happy to be there. Like, I imagine her just, like, being really, like, nice to the crew and, like, Nice to the cast. It's like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to nail this scene. And it's like, oh, Susan, you don't even know. No, her no. scenes are terrible. And oh, we will get bad. to them. They were bad. So the family shoves him on a plane. After all, he doesn't have anything to do anymore. They send him to Elizabethtown, Kentucky. And on the plane, he meets Kirsten Dunst, the character Claire. She moves him up to first class, and then she's extremely creepy. Yeah. Oh, that's why I, I added that qualifier in my Five Across the Eyes, because she, I don't know who thought she was being charming in this movie. I don't know how she, she thought she was being charming in this movie. She is basically like the female Edward Cullen, but on <laughs> on some sort of crazy mood-enhancing cocktail, because she's super hyper, but also lurking in the shadows, weird. It's- she has a lot of these strange, like, moments of wisdom where she tries to say something deep and it just is, it's awkward and weird. Like where she's talking about people's names. She's like, oh, I've never met a a Mitch I didn't like and Ben's are very mysterious. And she doesn't, she says a lot, but she never says anything. Yeah. 60 B. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, that's probably the creepiest part. So she gloms on to the one dude on this flight (laughs) in a very obvious, just, you know, walking past, but I'm going to sit down and talk to you about your life and people in your life and tell me what's wrong and I'm here to lend an ear. Then she's like, oh, you know, I know every place you're, you're going to. I know all of these towns. I'm going to draw you this map. And just in case you get lost, even though I keep repeating the phrase 60B, don't miss 60B, which is um, like the biggest hint that he's going to miss it later on in the film. <laughs> yeah, check right off now, the highway. Yeah. She writes down every single number she could possibly think of, like her fax number and cell phone numbers, and she gives him her, her email address, like, if you need anything, call me, don't hesitate, I'll help you out, buddy. And even when he's leaving the plane, she's, like, giving him these weird winks. It just looks like something's wrong with her face, like she's having muscle spasms. And, I mean, he's pretty clearly not interested a little disturbed by her which i thought was his most normal response this entire movie absolutely um and even as like they're walking away from each other in the airport she runs off the plane after him to keep yelling 60b at him as he's walking down the terminal like to get the hell out of the airport 60b don't forget 60b okay thanks you okay to drive i'm fine 60b 60B! And I, you know, I was really hoping that that would be all of her part in this movie because that was enough for me. But, nope, she comes back. Oh, she comes back with a vengeance. You know, Rob mentioned that thought Orlando Bloom had a good... He was doing an American accent well, and I agree. Though I think it was at the cost of emoting because he was so focused on the accent that he forgot how to do anything else. 
like put feeling in his voice or use his hands or move. Uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum, Kirsten Dunst slips out of that accent every third word. She cannot keep that Kentucky accent going for more than a sentence at the time, and it's really noticeable throughout the movie. Why don't you tell us about Elizabethtown itself? Because he gets there, eventually. Not before missing 60B. 60B! And uh, I just, I'm going to have it in my head all the time. I'm going to just be saying 60B. He, he says it a lot. It doesn't help him find it. And everyone knows the feeling when you're driving in an unfamiliar place and you miss the turn and you're just pissed off. And he pulls off to the side of the road and he's like sort of angry. Like I guess about as angry as the guy who plays Legolas can get. I, I really thought Cameron Crowe was going to put in some sort of like miraculous thing that would happen. And this is where I, one of the times I was actually expecting something cheesy and it didn't happen and I was disappointed. He gets into Elizabethtown. Pretty much immediately we see... The fam. Uh, we go into all his cousins, uh, his relatives, which is really one big happy family. And the whole time I, I have to wonder why, you know, Susan Sarandon tells him, you know, uh, don't plan on making any friends. He makes tons of friends because they're super friendly people in Elizabethtown. At least I thought this was creepy, maybe just because I always grew up in the suburbs and not a small town. But everyone is, like, watching him drive. Did anyone notice yeah, that? The, yeah, the small town hospitality was a little ridiculous. Especially, mm-hmm. he's driving into town and everyone's waving at him. Yeah, Th- like, These random children. They all knew him, even though he'd never really been there. Yeah, that was weird. It was way over the top. And, again, that's another I call bullshit moment. You don't know that this guy is coming to town and you're going to bring your kids to stand on the courthouse steps and wave at Drew Baylor, Mitch Baylor's only son. Yeah, between between everyone waving and welcoming him into town and when Kirsten Dunst on the plane walks out of the light towards him, I thought he was dead. <laughs> I thought that at the last scene was going to be him just on the exercise bike, dead, repeatedly being stabbed in the heart. And this was all like his vision of love at the end of his life because it seemed it seemed way too happy and too uh, to use a word that this shitty movie uses whimsical. This, I mean, I kind of wish that had been the beginning and end of the movie. Like he's in Kentucky, and then all of a sudden he realizes that he's actually been dead the whole time. That would have saved me a lot of <laughs> a lot of time and a lot of heartache through the rest of this movie. Um, I actually love that idea. Uh, the the cheap twist would have kind yeah. of saved this movie for me. Yeah, exactly. It would have been a Vanilla Sky ending. Yeah, and then could Thanks you imagine lot, if they Cameron started Crow. to market the the knife bikes, and that yeah. becomes like super <laughs> successful for depressed that's, people? That's a that's a good a good marketing strategy. You just people buy your bikes and use them, and you never have to deal with returns. I, guess. I mean, if the bike did kill him, we could say, "Hey, the bike worked a hell of a lot better than his shoes." <laughs> yeah, exactly. Buy this bike. So let's what? go over a couple of these uh, a couple of these family members. Okay. We've got Sideburns, his cousin, and he's a he's a washed up musician, kind of. Though his band never actually played, and he's a terrible father. His son screams and steals cars. Mind you, he's like six. But yeah. I, another moment I called bullshit is that kid would have. This is Kentucky. Yeah. They would have beaten the shit out of him. And it, it did seem stupid to that they got the worst kid. Maybe in movie, one of the worst and most annoying kids in movies. Well, this is also one of the the points in the movie where when you're meeting a lot of his family members, they're also setting up a lot of things that they're going to kind of call back to. Or they, they spend a lot of time in this area showing problems that, you know, clearly you think are 
going to have to be resolved by the end of the film. Like, Samson, clearly out of control, crazy. His father, who's this aged-out musician and doesn't really know what to do with him, but it's just like, ah, I'm just going to let my kid be free and be a kid, whatever. If you guys have a problem with it, whatever. Um, like, this hands-off dad that the whole rest of the family is kind of like, oh, why isn't he watching his kid? Um, so you're like, oh, well, I, I guess this is going to be something that has to get resolved. And then um, he, he has problems with his own father. Sideburns right. has problems with Sideburn Sr., who doesn't yeah. actually have sideburns. No, um, yeah, not supporting his music career or really letting him be who he wants to be or, I don't know, something like that. Thinking he's a shitty father, which he right. is. Well, he is. Completely yeah. accurate. We also have, and it, we kind of made reference to this before, Paula Dean. yes, <laughs> that Paula Dean as an aunt, I guess yeah. it was. And she, you know what? She was good. She was she a was southern aunt. I mean, she Paul wasn't really Dean playing act, a role. Man, I'll, I'll go on record. Paul Dean can act well. There's another five across the eyes. Paul Dean can act well, yeah. surprisingly. She was yeah. the best cameo in this movie, which is surprising when you have her up against, you know, again, Alec Baldwin and Susan Sarandon. You think that they're going to be the ones to kind of shine here. But no, it was Paula Dean, which totally didn't see coming. And apparently this killed her movie career, which is very sad because she's the only thing that should survive this movie. So a larger guy who I thought, well, I didn't think D actually thought was Wilfred Brimley for a second. <laughs> but as as the Netflix martyrs goes, we uh, we only get the poor man's version of famous actors. So we got the poor man's Wilfred Brimley. And I was actually really upset it wasn't Wilfred Brimley because between Brimley and Paula Dean, we could have made so many diabetes jokes. There would have been diabetes everywhere. Yeah. And that's really it. There's another guy goes by the name Bill Banyan who shows up, and they hint at a side plot there, but nothing ever comes of it. Nothing ever comes of anything in this movie. Basically, it's just a ton of southern hospitality, and there's no conflict. There's no conflict in this whole goddamn movie. Well, there's what there's yeah, there's like brief ideas of conflict. There's like these these very limited moments where you think these are like I said before, you think these are going to be problems that have to get resolved or. Like, something's going to come of these things, and nothing ever really does. I don't know. There's just so many things about this movie that are kind of touched upon and then left to wither away. I just would have liked to have seen why is Mitch the guy that the whole town loves so much. I mean, like, he wasn't certainly was not a bad man, but his own really family didn't seem to care that much. When he talks to his sister and things are going bad, you know, he checks in with her periodically because, like as Chris mentioned, she is his lifeline between his two lives. And, sh- and now their mother, uh, Susan Sarandon, is learning how to cook organically. And she's just terrible at everything she touches. All these little things that she does to parlay her grief, she's just bad at. And it's just like she is just that good-looking trophy wife. And I, I hate that the movie went there with her because Susan Sarandon is so likable. The character was so not... He he asked his sister how to call her back. She tells him to like pretty much dial hell yeah. and she'll pick up the phone. Hanging out with Susan Serenity in the kitchen and learning to cook doesn't really seem like hell to me. Especially when, you know, again, no one in this movie does anything that bad, but they're either loved or hated for it. It's it's all in the, the, the realm of absolutes with these people. And there's just for really no reason. Perhaps the most twee, annoying, cutesy shit part of this film he gets the call from his sister finds out that susan sarandon is is go like you said going crazy trying to fix cars doing this she's like the how does susan sarandon become comic relief in a film i don't know but it doesn't work 
Jessica Beale calls. She officially breaks it off with him. Thanks for coming, Jessica Beale. She's out of the movie. And then he decides to call Kirsten Dunst's character. Yeah. I mean, I thought he hit rock bottom when he was trying to tape a kitchen knife onto his exercise bike. But no, apparently rock bottom is thinking, hey, that really creepy chick on the airplane. Yeah, I'm going to call her now. And this is what I'm going to do with my knife. The cute, the cute concierge at the desk of his hotel was clearly into him. Yeah. If he was looking for some kind of pity sex, he had it. Yeah, I agree. But no. But not, no she was impressed by, ooh, big spender. Yeah, he throws down the company credit card. On the best room he could have, right up in the uh, the honeymoon. You know, um, I guess the whole floor was really a wedding suite of the, 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 the juxtaposition of, I guess, a happy life he sees, which is, I think, to me, the only subplot, so to speak, of this film that sort of works. It's not, it's not even, I don't know if you can even call it a subplot, but it's like a, a mirror to his own life. He sees people who are very happy to be together and in love and friends and family that are happy for them being there. You know, their parents are there, their friends are there. And he's stuck as like the only not person invited to the whole shindig. So he has nothing better to do, literally. I mean, he's got plenty of real people he could try to make a connection with and could probably get to know them just as well, if not better, than he knows Kirsten Dunst from the airplane creepo encounter and yet he decides to call her he's on the floor with the Chuck and was Chuck and Claire wedding Chuck and Cindy Chuck and Cindy Claire is Kirsten Dunst yeah the Chuck and Cindy wedding and he's feeling all alone and he calls Kirsten Dunst and Pam tell us about this dialogue oh I don't even it's just some of the most like you said before Kirsten Dunst saying things that sound like they should be deep but there's just there's nothing there but it's a whole conversation of them doing it back and forth to each other so you so drew who's pretty much been a couple word kind of dude this entire film at to this point we've known him as this kind of like you know down in his luck used to be shallow all about money and having the hot girlfriend dude now he's suddenly like this deep emotional guy and he's ready to open up and bare his soul to the most annoying human being on the planet and somehow they connect and they have all these things to talk about each other like do you ever wonder about this or do you ever feel like this and they're like yeah you know you totally get me these totally blanket statements that aren't very deep at all but you get me you understand me it sounds it sounds like two 15 year olds getting high for the first time that's what they say huh yes that's what they say i've always wondered this who were they? You know. Them. Them. Mm-hmm. The inimitable collective them. And who says we're supposed to listen to them? They do! Well, it, yeah, definitely that is a really good way of describing it. And they, they do it for apparently the entire night. They can't get enough of each other's half-thought-out ideas. You know, they're falling asleep on the phone together, and they're getting drunk together over the phone, and it's super... Like you said, it's super tooth-achingly. It's, it's such forced sweetness from, like, the two least likable leads I've ever seen in a movie that you just wish it would end, but it doesn't. And so they decide that after talking all night and realizing that they have all these connections that I might as well just stay up, you guys, do you want to meet up? And they're like, yeah, this, this is going to be good. We're going to 
really solidify this phone conversation by hanging out. They get to each other and they realize they've talked about all the deep things they had to say while they were on the phone. I mean, their whole relationship just does, it, it continues to seem completely unreal. If you yeah. just put yourself in the position of Orlando Bloom, like you, I wouldn't even have remembered her name if I was him, first of all, let alone be like, I think I should drive to meet this person. It's just creepy stewardess lady. That's it. Yeah, super creepy stewardess lady. Again, remember, I, I know in the in the little vampire movie mini episode we talked about why I didn't like Twilight. A lot of it was because of the inappropriate responses to people being super creepy. And this is the same thing except in a boy version. If a girl is that weird right off the bat, you shouldn't be like, oh, I'm going to call her and talk to her all night and then drive to meet her. But let's just say it's a man steward and a female passenger. How much more creepy would Kristen Dunst's advances and dialogue become? Even, okay, so the next scene, you know, you thought her being on the plane was kind of creepy. No, it gets creepier. So they meet in the morning and she's like, well, I have to go leave for a flight to Hawaii. She takes off and he's left to keep dealing with very old plots and is just tired. And he goes back to the hotel, talking to Claire and... He thinks Claire is in Hawaii or on a flight to Hawaii, something like that. Yeah, she comes up behind him, puts her hands on his eyes, and he is overjoyed to see her when she reveals that she has been there the whole time. He's not like, oh, hey, aren't you supposed to be on a flight somewhere? Why are you still here? What are you doing creeping around behind me? No, this is, again, acceptable to him. Now, we failed to mention that by this point, there's been about 15 songs and music kind of montages that have happened. I think he uses every song he's ever heard that he didn't use in another movie. And he's had such good uses of music in other films, you know? The the stereo over the head in Say Anything is iconic. But there's nothing in this film, music-wise, that works. I mean, especially when sometimes the lyrics of the song are specifically pointing out what's happening in the scene. Mostly like when he's with Cyburns and he's talking about something with my brother or something. And it's like, all right, like... All the songs are very well chosen to go where they go. And he, again, is relying, I think, very heavily on the songs that someone else has written to tell the parts of the story or to reinforce the scenes as they come in the story. The soundtrack had to be three discs. Yeah. And I mean, (laughs) true. But it's also like it's like the 60B thing again. It's bashing it over the head with the music. Like, hey, look at this scene. Listen to this song. Here's your point. Here's your point. Here's your point. Don't miss it. Like, the whole thing just seems like it's trying too hard. We get another one because they go and pick out an urn, an urn in a cutesy way, and then they frolic through a graveyard. It is the most baffling idea of, like, romance I've seen. Like, I believed more in Anakin and Padme, and that up to now was the worst (laughs) romance I've ever seen on film. Yeah, no, this is bad. And she does this thing. She Because do- she needs to have quirks because she's the Manic Pixie dream girl. She does this thing where she takes – she air cameras and she takes pictures with her fingers of things that she finds cute, including Orlando Bloom holding the ashtray that will soon hold his father while he looks miserable. They go through a graveyard. She shows, uh, she shows him the patron saint of Kentucky, Colonel Sanders' grave. <laughs> And I, I, I don't, I don't even know. There's nothing cute about it. Nope. It's very, it's strange. And she says, oh, "I've got this line here." I'm impossible to forget, but I'm hard to remember. What right. does that even mean? 
Yeah, again, like you said, because she has to have those quirks. But at least she seems like she would be one of those people who has, like, those weird little, like, just kind of, like, kooky, like, oh, okay, blah, blah, blah. They're like, okay, I can buy it from you. I accept that from you. You know, and I and I know Natalie Portman was a little much in Garden State, but at least I still kind of believed it from her, too. Kirsten Dunst is just, like, oh, that picture thing. I don't know why it bothered me so much, but it was just such an obvious, like, Look at me, I'm the different girl. I'm cool and do my own little thing. You know, it was just such a forced attempt at, mm-hmm. attempt at that. And then, yeah, when she says comments like that, where they're, they've had this magical day together celebrating death, and the end of the night... Oh, and she's also been talking about the fact that she has a boyfriend. Um, yeah, Ben. She's kind of using that as this way to not end up kissing Drew or having anything with him, but... You know, apparently their day was just too much for her to bear. And so they end up kissing at the end of this night and they sleep together and they wake up the next morning. And again, like this, I, I feel like this just shows what kind of an unrealistic human being she is, how delusional she is as a character. She wakes up before he does and um, is basically trying to get him to spend time with her in the morning or to tell her like, oh, please don't go. Stay with me. I'm in love with you. He's apparently a very heavy sleeper, so she's stomping around, knocking over dishes and going, oop, ha, 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 and looking over at the bed. Yeah, there's two things in this scene, one that I really liked and one that actually made me quite angry. The one that I liked is that when she leaves the hotel room, the the wedding party, um, I keep forgetting the name, Cindy, Cindy's wedding party, who had made friends with Claire the night before because everybody loves Claire. She's so cute and adorable and original, but blah. Uh, they laugh at her and they they do like the woo because she's wearing the same clothes she did the the night before. I thought that was a funny little little gag. It sounds stupid, but it works actually kind of well with the editing. And before that, they directly compare Kirsten Dunst's character to Audrey Hepburn. Did you notice that that Audrey Hepburn's on the TV looking for her shoe, and they cut to Kirsten yes. Dunst? That yes, absolutely. That offended me. That was offensive. You should have been offended. I totally forgot about that. And also, good call, because they uh, that's another thing that's just never explained. So Kirsten Dunst shows up at this hotel, you know, to come back to Drew, and has sometime, uh, somehow had time to kind of, yeah, initiate herself with this wedding party, and everyone loves her and want to know everything about her. There's even a scene where the, the bride-to-be says something like, oh, I just met her last night, but I feel like I've known her my whole life, and Again, you can't understand the appeal of this woman and why everyone wants to be around her. What did you think about the forced conflict that occurs outside at this part? Did you even get what was going on? Because I didn't. Like, that whole scene of her, like, daintily strutting around the apartment, or the hotel room, rather, was very, like, done for Cameron Crowe. Like, I feel like she was doing it for him behind the camera, not for... Orlando Bloom, the character. Like, no one would ever do that. Like, I'm leaving now. Here I go. You wake him the fuck up. Like, if you're going to be that way about it, you just don't, like, poke him in the side and be like, hey, man, I want breakfast. Like, you want to go to breakfast? I would like breakfast. Like, we could talk about your dad's death over breakfast. Let's do breakfast. (laughs) And this scene is not really strong in my memory for some reason. You're losing me with this one. I guess it was the, the sort of fake breakup sort of. I mean, for the hotel, it goes right to the to the other part of him and her and her special surprise for him, which is well, a fucking yeah. ridiculous. He acts like a total asshole out of nowhere. 
he does, he does, but he also, I, I mean, I, I guess I didn't take it as out of nowhere because it seems more like the Drew we met at the beginning of the movie. He is so self-absorbed about this, you know, this colossal failure and how his name is going to be ruined and how, you know, he has no future in the shoe designing world anymore, which apparently was his dream. And so he's outside telling her, like, I'm a big failure. You don't want to be around me, basically. I've got nothing. And then, yeah, and then she says, you think I would care about something like that? Something's going to be published that pinpoints me as the most spectacular failure in the history of my profession, which is all I know how to do. And I've been here this whole time trying to be responsible and charming and live up to this success that doesn't exist. All I really want is to not be here. I'm sorry. I have a very dark appointment with destiny. That's my secret. That's it? Yes, that's it. Oh, I guess I, I just thought a small part of you might be a small bit sad to see me go. But... I guess this is all mostly about a shoe. Again, in that weird sort of like, don't you know me better than this? Because we've had one really long phone conversation. We just slept together. Don't you yeah. know I'm not that kind no, of girl? I absolutely <laughs> don't know that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so she basically says, like, I don't care about that. But instead of that being a lead into I care about you, it's more of we shouldn't be doing this anyway. And I'll see you at your dad's memorial. Which, yeah, that weird breakup. I'm not breaking up with you, but I'm breaking up with you. Yeah, it just seems like a moment of Cameron Crowe saying, ah, well, I guess I need, like, some conflict in this movie. So this is going to happen. <laughs> and none of it makes sense. They don't seem to really be sure of what they're arguing over. And I sure wasn't. It was like a circular argument that didn't really make any sense. And this happens a lot between the two, is that they have these conversations about what they are. This happens again on the night before, right before they have sex. They have this talk about whether or not they're, like, together and what they are. And it's just like, it's been 24 hours, man. Yeah, the whole movie, they just barely know each other. And it's like, is she worth this argument in the street in public? Like, why are you even getting out of bed? It's not something that a, a real person would do. But I think maybe this can, and I want to talk about this near the end, but I'll bring it up now, too. I think that maybe just with her character, an interesting, maybe a little uh, observation, I think, is that maybe she just loves death. And I can't, mm. couldn't help but thinking, you know, as we go throughout the movie, she might not like him at all. She's just super interested in this funeral. Like, this as soon as she sees back on the plane that the suit is, like, not for him and she somehow knows it's for his dead father, she's like, oh. <laughs> and you, like, see it in her face. Like, she gives him a weird look. And that's when the stalking begins. And she just can't wait to shop for urns with him and frolic in a cemetery with him. And yeah. as they do their fake breakup, she says, basically, I'll see you at the service. Like, I'm not missing this shit. I spent all this time with you just to go to a funeral. I'm fucking going whether I like you or not. So she's like she's like a Will Ferrell's character in Wedding Crashers. I think so. I think she's just she's not trying to meet someone w with funerals. I think she's just maybe funerals turn her on. I think that's why she had sex with a guy she's known for less than a day and a half. I, I think she is like a weird like two steps removed from necrophiliac. Like she's romanced <laughs> by the thought of grief, and I think 
that adds to her creepiness. I yeah. think she is, she is sexually aroused by the grief of a, another man, of a man that she sees, especially a stranger, someone she doesn't have to get involved with. She can, like, smell his grief and latches onto it, and it turns her on, and then has sex with the dude in a couple hours. I mean, this chick's a flight attendant. She could be seeing guys go to funerals all over the world. I think this is another little hit and run for Kristen Dunst, and I think her character is a bit of a, a, bit of a freak when it comes to the death scene. I'm just saying. I like no, it. No, I, I totally agree, and I also think you know, I kind of felt awkward about the fact that, you know, so they're in the hotel and they're hanging out and, and Drew is clutching the urn with his father's ashes in them. And she spends so much time like touching the urn and talking to the urn, like, Oh, Hey Mitch, what are you doing? Oh, I think Mitch likes this. This is cool. Like, I don't know. That made me feel awkward. If I just met a person, I mean, I understand them trying to make me feel better about the fact that I lost my father. But them being so casual, I don't know, and like so familiar with my my father's ashes would be a little strange to me. I don't. Absolutely, I, don't, I have yeah. friends that I've been friends with for twenty years, and I don't think that I would even approach the urn with their dead father in it, let alone like invite it to play basketball or like bring try to bring her into breakfast or whatever the hell she thinks she's going to do with Mitch, who is now a pile of ashes. And the fact that we're supposed to, I mean, I can, I can go with so much. I mean, I, I can suspend disbelief to a point. Um, but by this point in the movie, I, I was done. And I'm just like, this is ridiculous. And it gets, it gets even ridiculouser, if you can believe that. We have the funeral. The funeral service, which is a typical movie funeral service, which is not one that has ever happened in real life, where every single person gives a eulogy. So they're up there, and, and now we start to see more of the background of the family, which you think you know, but you have no idea. Because here is where we figure out why the, the, the little hatred of Susan Sarandon comes into place. Because he basically stole Mitch from these loving, kind-hearted, southern, small-town people. And again, uh, you know, it, something doesn't smell right. You know, we, we finally get in Susan Sarandon's eulogy her explanation of her relationship with this wonderful man and if he really is that wonderful why is it such a stretch to see that a man that she meets on an elevator could become her husband for 27 years now that was the little backstory of them they meet on an elevator i believe in tokyo again completely random yep. and i could imagine that camera crow could come out with a prequel to elizabeth town called tokyo in which a young susan sarandon and a young mitch meet on an elevator for the first time and have a wacky romance in an yeah. asian subculture uh but i shitty, think that movie's yet to be seen but like I, it parallels i think or it's supposed to parallel what drew is going through because his love is very weird and sudden and like so was hers but she married him and had two kids and stole him from his fiance um a very sad uh southern woman who gets up and is like oh, i love him and she is beside herself and susan Sarandon's like hey motherfuckers i'm taking tap dancing now Check this out. Oh, God. In that point in time, I you ever watch something and you kind of like, your face gets a little red because you're like, oh, this was that moment for me. So yeah. bad. She just drives it home for me with that. For me, it was the boner story yeah. that she tells up on stage. Oh, God, yeah. That, oh, how could I forget that? She's talking about her neighbor who, you know, she is grieving but doesn't know really how to grieve, so she's doing all these lessons. And, yeah, she basically walks up on the stage. Again, another 
instance in this movie of kind of an inappropriate response to something. Yeah, it goes I, it goes it from was, a eulogy to a stand-up routine. Yeah, and, and I, she talks about the fact that she's taking comedy lessons because, you know, these are things that she's wanted to do, and now that her husband is no longer there, rather than grieve, she's just throwing herself into all of these things because that's the only way she knows to deal with it. And fine, okay, we get it. And even though Mitch, by all accounts, is this fun-loving, jokey kind of guy, it still seems a little disrespectful for her to get up on stage, talk about, you know, hey, I know you guys all think I stole him, but I loved him. But moving on from that, we're going to go into all these jokes now about all the things I'm doing to get over the loss of my husband. And one of them is telling jokes. Here was somebody who truly cared. Then... I felt something else. <laughs> something huge. <laughs> let's just say it, let's just say it. The boner. It's like it's showtime at the Apollo or something. Everyone acts like it's the funniest fucking thing they've ever heard in their life. Yeah. Which doesn't make any sense because I feel like they should all be scandalized by her being up there talking about some guy having a raging heart on against her body at their family member's funeral. Like, I feel like all of them would have hated her more after this. But no, they fucking love it. They're eating it up. She's awesome. And then she goes... Oh, okay, they like this. I'm going to keep saying the word boner over again. Boner Bob. Pressing his boner up against me. And you, if you decide to watch this movie, which please don't because it's really bad, you will just be sitting there feeling uncomfortable. But everybody in, apparently in the room who should be feeling uncomfortable is just up and out. Like, yeah, even the guy who doesn't want to laugh, they cut to him and he's kind of laughing a little bit. The more she says the word boner, it just gets funnier apparently. The only two people that have the correct reaction are are the only two characters that I don't hate in this movie. Paula Dean yeah. is disgusted, and Judy Greer is like, w w I don't want to hear my mother talking about boners ever. <laughs> yeah, particularly at my father's funeral. Like, mom's already eliciting boners from the neighbors. Like, dad's barely dead. Yeah, and then, and then like you said, she does a tap dance to his favorite song, which should be a sweet moment, but the way she's doing the tap dance, she, like, keeps turning to this big picture of him hanging up behind her and like kind of like doing like a little winky face pointy gun at him like hey, hey you're dead but here's my moment to shine dancing to your favorite song i got a total <laughs> i got a total david lynch vibe from this scene it, just, it, it was so I, uncomfortable so <laughs> uncomfortable and like kind of out of place like it took it to a level where it's like if you're gonna do that then do it and if yeah. you're not then don't introduce it at your at basically the climax of the film, at your pinnacle, like you, you know this funeral is coming the whole time. This, this whole, you know, let's eulogize the dead and and let everyone know how awesome he was, and everyone's gonna walk out of there and be like, holy shit, that boner story was hilarious. It's yeah. like Mitch was a great guy. Exactly. She just the way she tries to straddle the two things. So she's trying to straddle the bridge between like 
this rift that has come between her and the family. You know, she's trying to say, like, listen, I understand why you don't like me, but you have to understand I really loved him. But then she does all of these things that are completely disrespectful for his memory, like just not even paying attention to the fact that she cares that he's dead at all. It's just this very weird, like, mishmash of, like, signals she's sending. But everybody there, because it's a movie and because, like you said, Cameron Crowe doesn't want to have conflict, he's just, all right, let's wrap it up. Let's put all these things together and get it out of here. He is like, no, this works, and everyone loves it, and everyone loves her now. Well, that's the thing that happens a couple times in this movie is that there's some unfunny bullshit, and people have to act like it's the funniest thing they've ever heard. It happens yeah. more than once. And yeah. just, like, could you imagine the table reading for this? Like, Susan Sarandon is sitting there with the other actors and just has to go through the Boner Bob story. Oh, like, she yeah. had to say this more than once, and it's, yeah. that's the worst thing in this movie. That yeah, happened I feel to me. Like she should have said just no. I don't want to do it. This is stupid. Come on, Cameron. You can do better than this. I felt like that a lot throughout this movie. That the dialogue was just so unrealistic and terrible. And I thought I thought Kirsten Dunst actually was really trying a lot of the time. Because she was the scene she where was. they're in. Uh, I keep forgetting their names. Cindy and Chuck's yeah. wedding yeah. hall, and she's doing like the I like you. I like you. Like, she's doing all of this stuff that she's really trying to get into this character. And the dialogue is so bad. And, and maybe that's why everyone failed so badly in this movie is because all of their characters are just written horribly. I just, I think also Orlando Bloom just doesn't have it to be the lead actor in a movie no. like this. I think he can be a good co-lead. If the focus isn't all on him, he's fine, but nothing about him makes you want to watch more of him. Just throughout the whole film, and we're, we're practically near the end. I mean, we've reached Mitch's funeral, and at this point, I'm still saying to myself, I really don't care if they end up together or not. Yeah. I mean, a relationship that lasts a day from creepy airline chick, he could just he could just meet a chick outside the, 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 the funeral. It could be a waitress at the funeral, and he could have a meaningful relationship with her, like... It does not take much for Drew to really latch on to somebody except the all-night phone conversation. But, like, what they have did not seem special for the whole film. Uh, and here we are almost at the end. And I just don't care if he never sees her again or if they end up being married and having two kids like, you know, like Drew's parents did. It just doesn't matter. Well, and we've gotten to the point now that you kind of referenced earlier. Okay, so after this ridiculous happy and thinking, which... Is, well, um, we have to so, first. We have to put the exclamation point on this whole bullshit funeral, where yeah, sideburns no. and his terrible band, <laughs> which is actually my morning jacket, because they I was just going to say they're not terrible in real life, but it's it's they they do Freebird, and he's oh. actually a good singer. So it's just the end of High Fidelity. They sing Freebird. They have a large paper mache dove that they release <laughs> over the audience, and the lights set it on fire. And it crashes into the ground, and it's a perfect metaphor for this film. It's a huge <laughs> fiasco, and the sprinklers go off, and everyone leaves. And Claire has shown up at this point. So she comes up to Drew, and she says, you know, I have a very special map for you. Um, because she made him promise, or, well, he is going, uh, doing a road trip home from Kentucky. So Kentucky to Oregon. And she's telling I think him, it's because he doesn't want to meet another stewardess. He's getting yeah. the hell off the airlines. Exactly. Well, he always talked about how he was going to do a road trip with his father, and now that his father is dead, he's like, I'm just going to take his ashes with me, and it's going to be like the same thing. 
Um, so, you know, she's, and she's basically encouraging him. You should get out there. You should go do it. There's a lot of the world you have to see, um, to grow as a human being. So she shows up to give him a special map and, you know, and then this fire happens and she helps his family members again, showing how personal she is. She just, you know, puts her arm around one of his family members. Oh, okay. Like I'm going to lead you out of this burning room and disappears. And you don't see her for maybe ever again. It would have been great if that could have been the ending right there, but no. Of course and the not. map, the map is monstrous. I have, yeah, I have science textbooks smaller than this map that she gives him. I mean, she well, basically leaves him with the English uh, English town Necronomicon <laughs> for him to explore, yeah. and it is it is massive. It is massive, and you're and you're wondering like, why is this map so big? Oh, because Claire is super creepy still, and this did not seem like a sweet gesture to me at all. If someone I barely met put this much effort into something like this for me, I'd be a little sketched out, but maybe that's just me. Maybe I'm just a little bit more suspicious. Well, clearly, Cameron Crowe, who loves music and loves forcing mixtapes on you, wishes that his fantasy pixie dream girl would do this for him. Gives him so many CDs. I mean, this is her boombox over the head. You know, this is her say anything moment. She gives him the gift of CDs, mixed CDs. But it's not even just the weirdest part to me is not that she gave him a mixed CD for the ride home. It's that she gave him a basic, a step-by-step instruction of every single like moment of his journey home. Like she sat there and poured over a map, like Google maps, like, how much time is it going to take him to get from here to here? And like timed every song to every place he was going to be found all of these landmarks along the way. Again, you know, she isn't, let's go back to the fact that she is a stewardess. I don't know when the hell she has time to drive through the country, finding all these pinpoint locations, let alone when in the whole mess of this happening, like her meeting him, the memorial, when she has time to do her job, be with him and then make this really extensive project that had to have taken days, like just hours upon days. She probably never slept. And maybe that was why she was so manic and crazy is because she was doing a lot of speed to stay up. It's lack of sleep. It's definitely yeah. lack of sleep. Like They've established that she gets no sleep before a big Hawaii trip that she's able to call out of no problem. Yeah. The airline has no customers, so it's no big deal. That's true. That's why there's only two on that airline. Um, and she predicts, she says, this is the soundtrack to your trip home. It's going to take you 48 hours or something like that. And she has music for every single stop. Like she times, like when he's driving over the Mississippi, this is the song that's going to play. That's what I'm and saying. She, she must know when he's, how long it's going to take him to shit. She must know there's not going to be any traffic miraculously anywhere on his trip. You can only suspend disbelief so far. And not only that, if someone I just met gave me a bunch of music I've never heard before on a solo road trip home, I probably wouldn't listen to it and I would just hope I never saw them again. Yeah, okay, you know, the weirdest part to me, though, is there's one moment on the CD where, and I don't know how she predicts this one, because this is a big stretch for me. She predicts that he is going to stop at, like, a restroom or, like, a rest stop of some sort, find a newsstand, find the article that's talking about how he just took a big shit on the shoe industry, (laughs) and and she's like, you're allowed to wallow in it for, like, five minutes, and then you have to get over it and get back in the car and drive. How she fucking knew when exactly he was going to stop, because... I mean, it maybe would have worked if she was, like, a voice in his head, but she's clearly not... 
She's clearly speaking on these these CDs, and it is absurd. I mean, I just and, and like Chris said about the traffic thing, like she's perfectly timing it as if there are no cars on the road whatsoever. What I like to believe is that she's already had this set list picked out for decades now and just keeps reusing it, and adding the, on for more. For the twenty to other it. people that she's that she's met on plane <laughs> rides and then killed. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's what I like to believe because. I mean, I know that I've had to make, you know, mixtapes or something. Like, if you've ever had to make a mixtape for somebody and you want it to mean something, like, it takes you a while to find the songs that you want to put on there. I'm as lame as this sounds. Super lame, but whatever. You know, but she somehow has time to make 18 of these mixtapes and mix CDs. But, I mean, then we come to basically the end of the movie. Well, let's let's talk about a couple of the places she makes him go. Okay, she makes yeah. him go eat the best chili in the world so that he's going to have to shit. He's going to have to pull over. You fucked up your whole mixtape already. She makes him go to her favorite tree. Who has yep. a favorite tree except Manic Pixie Dream Girls? She says he has to pull over and dance. Yeah. And he dances like a Tuscan Raider. <laughs> and it's just – it's all this quirky bullshit that she makes him do so that he can feel – what is So the he point? can feel alive, Chris. So that yeah. he can feel alive for the first time because in these kind of movies, and and we've seen them all, and we may talk about the Manic Pixie Dream Girl thing a little bit more. Actually, I, I read a thing, I don't know if this is true, but apparently the term was, was coined shortly after this movie. That it was from this it movie, yeah. It said that Kirsten Dunst was the original Manic Pixie Dream Girl um, because her behavior is so outrageous and right. so unbelievable and it sets up this romantic ideal for however many lonely guys in the world to say, maybe one day a girl will care enough about me to plan my road trip for me. And it's it's not real. It's so out there. And then this is a serious film. I mean, this film thinks that it's sending a message and Cameron Crowe probably sat back at the end of the day and said, I think I'm doing well by this film. You know, here you go, pat on the back. And it's just like, it doesn't register. It 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 hits all the wrong notes. I think for all of us involved, this trip home somehow finds him at the second largest farmer's market in the world because the world's largest farmer's market would not be manic pixie dream girl enough. It has to be almost the best, but not really the best, but it's more, cute because it's the second best so eh, i'll be there look for the red hat and it's like really really and the the number of red hats that he sees i mean he sees a red sombrero at one point and he's just scoping he's so hopeful and it's just like for what is there a million dollars under this red hat or is it just kirsten dunce's you know blonde head and as it turns out it's the second one and there she is. She has been waiting for yeah. him at the world's second largest farmer's market. She's probably had a couple of quiches. She's bought some honey, maybe uh, tried some dip and checked out the organic vegetables. And she's just been standing for him. But it's supposed to be happy because they're reunited at last. And it was just the weakest unification of romantic leads Wait, in a movie so I've seen in a long time. There's like... Four quick points that I just want to... So, going back to the stops on the road trip and going back to, Rob, your earlier thing about how she might like death, 
she does make him stop at the um, hotel where Martin Luther King oh, was yeah. a junior was assassinated, which got turned into a museum. But oh when yeah. You- yeah, when you were talking about the whole death thing, I was like, oh, yeah, she does make him go look at the room, and he got shot in, didn't she? Oh, yeah, that's cool. That's a really, that I think that supports the argument. She loves I, death. It does. Going back to the end of the movie, like you were saying, um, the fact that she timed this road trip for there to be no traffic, but considering there probably was traffic, and he probably made pit stops longer than she expected, and maybe he slept a little bit later than she wanted him to, she had to have been at this farmer's market for, like, a good day and a half, yeah. probably, before he got there. Which, it, it might be the creepiest thing that she's done in this whole movie. But, again, he just eats it up. Loves it. Loves that there's some girl who's willing to wait at the world's second largest farmer's market for him. And the note she leaves him, she says, you know, look for the girl in the red hat. Where he finds that note is in his spasmodica shoes, like we talked before, on this little shoe display. So she knew that they were going to be selling spasmodicas there. Again, how the fuck she knew that, I don't know. But she finds them and decides she's going to tuck a note in there, which no one else decides to fuck with this entire time. So maybe she was just lingering around that tent, making sure no one found her note but him. I mean, I think she camped out there for days and put the note in. Like, she saw him in the distance and was like, oh, shit. Like, like she had, like, a blue hat on at first and was like, oh, let me put the note in the shoe. Now it's time for me to switch to the red hat. I, and again, Pam, thank you, because the note in the shoe, it was so ridiculous, I forgot about it. And now I'm being reminded of it very clearly because this was another I call bullshit moment. The whole movie was an I call bullshit movie. It's not realistic whatsoever. It doesn't make any sense. And then you get to to the point where she hides the note for him. And it's just like, there is no way. And like what farmer's market sells top of the line athletic shoes. What are the chances? They're, they're, they're not good. And then what are the chances that anybody should watch this movie are also not good. I've got some trivia about this film. Originally Jane Fonda was cast in Susan Sarandon's role, but had to drop out. Really? Indeed, and also some people that auditioned for Orlando Bloom's part include Ashton Kutcher, Colin oh. Hanks, Sean William Scott, Chris Evans, and James Franco, with Sean William Scott being the closest to getting the role other than Orlando Bloom. Really? Huh. You That's, know, Stifler might have worked. I could have seen Colin Hanks. I could have seen Colin Hanks doing it, honestly. And I mean, not that the movie would have been better, but at least he would have been a little bit more likable. Up for the Kirsten Dunst role was Jessica Biel. She was actually initially given the role until Kirsten Dunst was able to free up some time and took the role. And that's why Jessica Biel was given that consolation role. So imagine this movie with Jessica Biel and Sean William Scott. I can't imagine Jessica Biel being, you know, as much as I didn't like Kirsten Dunst, I feel like I would have hated Jessica Biel even more. Yeah. any attempt that she had to be quirky would have just been like shooting myself in the face. Like, I feel like that wasn't really bad. And here's, here's the thing that I found the most interesting. So the original cut of this film was shown at the Toronto Film Festival, and it was disastrous. Cameron Crowe cut 18 minutes from this film. No way! <laughs> this movie was 20 minutes longer. How? 
It must have been. I mean, the funeral, the, the, the whole, like, funeral scene would have been longer, I think. Maybe them trolloping through the graveyard would have been longer. They may have gone to, like, a morgue. Well, there was an ending that was cut. There was an additional epilogue that, oh, just listen to this fucking... An epilogue reveals that the shoe designed by Drew turns out to be a hit as it whistles with every step. Wow. Wow. I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad that was cut because that would have made this movie even more unbearable. (laughs) But. Oh. Well, as one other thing, as Rob mentioned, uh, this is the movie that coined the phrase Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Nathan Rabin of the AV Club in his My Year of Flops column, described her as a bubbly, shallow, cinematic creature. Uh, And also, his My Year of Flops column, this was the first one he ever did, the rating system is failure, fiasco, or secret success. Nice. So he he owes a a little bit to Elizabethtown, sadly. It's probably its most infamous thing. Now, how much do you think this cost? Ooh, that's a great question. I mean, can we talk about just... If you talk about the budget, I would imagine that a whole lot of it went to salary because yeah. of the cameos, unless Alec Baldwin was deciding to have a you know charitable bone in his body and not work for money, but I, I don't think so. So I would say that the, the, uh, the budget would go to the actor salaries because of all the cameos and also the music licenses yeah. i mean let's be real you you can't just use a song in your movie because you love it i mean you gotta pay you gotta pay good for that stuff i have no idea i can't even venture a guess it's probably something i'm gonna be like really that much money when is it this movie but um go ahead was it was it one billion dollars which you could round, or one million? No, one billion rounded up from nine hundred. Was it nine hundred and seventy-three million dollars? Close. It was. For, it's close. It was forty-five million. Oh wow! Do you want to guess how much it made? Uh, uh, Twenty twenty-two. Yeah. It made its money back. It made fifty-two million. Really? Okay. But was still considered a pretty massive flop for a Cameron Crowe film. Yeah, and I'm surprised that many people saw it because I, I remember it coming out in theaters and remember having no interest in seeing it then and then remember it leaving theaters. Yeah, so that's that's Elizabethtown. So here comes the point in the show. Netflix or not flicks, should this be added to the listener's instant queue right now? 60B! No, not flicks. Don't. I mean, we told you everything that happens in this movie I know maybe the name Cameron Crowe sounds appealing to you. Maybe you really like some of his other films. This is not one of his good ones. This is not one he should be remembered for. Hopefully he locks us in a vault somewhere and never shows it again. Don't do it. I'm going to agree. I'm going to agree with Pam big time because, like I said in the very beginning, I, I did not have fun watching this movie. Like, it wasn't bad enough, like some of the other films that we watched, that is either like a nostalgia trip or, like, I can identify with in any way. I mean, I remember pausing the movie to, like, get up and use the bathroom, like, 35 minutes in. And I was, like, dismayed that there was, like, still an hour and 10 minutes in this movie. I'm like, are you kidding me? And if you're a Cameron Crowe fan, this is easily one of his, you know, duds of a, of a film. And I actually, this movie made me think I don't like him very much. Like, I don't the way that this movie sours his other movies. It's like I watched this and I'm like, oh yeah, I really didn't like Almost Famous. <laughs> I really didn't like Jerry Maguire. That movie kind of sucked. Like, 
eh, say anything. Like, it's kind of cheesy. Like, this movie made his other movies that I thought were okay actually worse by viewing this film. So actually, I would say if you are a Cameron Crowe fan, please don't watch this movie if you haven't seen it because you may rethink your opinions on some of his other films. There's no real good chemistry. There's nothing... And I'm, you know what, I enjoy a bad romantic comedy every once in a while. Yeah, I, you know, I'll admit it, but this just, no, there's just nothing there. Don't do it. Yeah, I'm also not going to recommend this. If someone in my sophomore year creative writing class brought this to the table, <laughs> I would have laughed at them and told them it was terrible and had no conflict, no characters, no nothing. And the movie is nothing except a two-hour time sink. And I couldn't believe how long it went, how many endings there were. Not a good movie. Not a recommendation. Uh, I I texted D. I asked him if he would recommend this movie, and he just texted back, "Go fuck yourself." So, so I think this I think is that's an, very good. Yeah, I think this is an O for four. Not flicks. Do not watch this movie by any means. Please <laughs> let it die. In fact, yeah. just go just go vote it one on Netflix. Because that's what I did. <laughs> your recommendations, without even seeing it, your recommendations will be better off for it. Like if you Trust loved me, Garden it's a one State, star at best. Trust if you me. loved Garden State, and you just you're just thinking to yourself sometimes, I wish I could watch that again, but shittier, then go for it. I mean, yeah, but this is even shittier than like shitty Garden State. This it is, is just... and that's amazing because yeah. Garden State's not a good movie. It's an yeah. annoying film. Um, you know, I'm glad I didn't have to pay to see it. You know, and and it makes you feel bad for the people who are in it. It was misguided. It was a misfire. If you hate Susan Sarandon, watch this movie. <laughs> All right. Well, that was Elizabethtown. For the next episode, we're doing a WrestleMania spectacular because the biggest, the biggest wrestling event of the year is coming up right around the corner in April. It's the first event in April. So for our first Netflix Martyrs podcast in April, we're going to be doing The Bounty Hunters starring Trish Stratus. Oh, Wow, that is like a throwback WWE star. I was expecting maybe uh, something rock-related or even Stone Cold. But a John Cena classic. John Cena classic. Uh, what was that, The Marine? That yeah. one. I actually saw that. What is wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we're on this show. All right, Rob. Netflix Martyrs, man. What are you going to do? We'll be back with some Trish Stratus classics. I cannot wait. Wait, when did this movie come out? Do you know? Is it like now Trish Stratus or like... In the heyday, Trish Stratus. I think it's post, like, like just after she retired. So maybe all right, like all right. So it could go either way. I'm looking forward to it. That's that's going to be very interesting. Not the WWE star I would have expected. So, you know, well done, Chris. Well nope. done. Th- throwing a curveball for this one. Uh, I'm turning heel on this podcast, hitting Pam with a steel chair. Guys, thank you for joining me once again. Thank you. Yeah. And if you've made it this far, congratulations. You get a gold star. Peace out, everybody. And remember, if you like the show, go to our website, netflixmartyrs.blogspot.com. From there, you can find us on Facebook, or you can email us, netflixmartyrs at gmail.com. We want to have, like, a reader mailbag spot in the future on a mini-sode, so send us some feedback on this episode or any episode, and we'll try to get you on the air. Have a great week, everyone. We'll see you for our Manic Pixie Dream Girl mini-sode.
60 B. <laughs>